Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Peter S. Kim, Ph.D., President of the Merck Research Laboratories, Merck and Company, Inc., speaking at the Yale School of Medicine's Bicentennial Symposium, Biomedicine in the New Century, on April 29, 2011. Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Peter Kim. I met Peter Kim for the first time in 1978 when he was an undergraduate at Cornell. A couple of things uh, were really notable and have stayed with me. The first is uh, his booming laugh that I'm sure many of you heard, uh, have heard during the last couple of days. Uh, it penetrates walls, travels down hallways, and uh, is really quite remarkable. The second thing that stood out was uh, his focus and ambition on the kinds of problems he wanted to work on. At that time, he told me that he was interested in working on the biophysics of uh, protein folding. I kind of raised my eyebrows and said, boy, that's a really hard problem. And he said, yeah, but it's really important. He went off to Stanford in the MD-PhD program and worked with Buzz Baldwin, where he actually succeeded in defining the fundamental principles that uh, uh, underlie the folding of every protein uh, in, uh, inside cells, uh, and did a remarkable job as a graduate student. He left uh, Stanford to become uh, one of the first crew of uh, Whitehead Fellows at the then new Whitehead Institute in Boston, uh, stayed on the faculty uh, there, and had uh, similarly uh, spectacular success in continuing uh, his work. He defined uh, the structure and uh, principles of the leucine zipper, fundamental protein, uh, protein interaction problem that underlies how proteins such as FOSS and June uh, make heterodimers. Uh, he also defined uh, fundamental mechanisms by which uh, uh, viruses enter cells with the spring-loaded uh, mechanism uh, in uh, influenza virus uh, as well as uh, HIV. This work was uh, very uh, well recognized in the field. He received the, the National Academy of Sciences Molecular Biology Award. Uh, the Hans Neurath Prize of uh, the Protein Society, and he was elected to the Institute of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences. Nonetheless, in 2001, uh, he was recruited by Ed Skolnick uh, to Merck, and in 2003 was named the president of uh, Merck uh, Research Labs, a position that uh, he continues to hold uh, today. I didn't have to ask him uh, why he uh, took that job, but it was, seemed pretty simple. It was very hard and it was very important. All of the great work that, we've heard, that we do in academia and we've heard about these last two days uh, will go for naught unless these basic science principles are translated into new uh, therapeutics. Uh, and uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, someone of Peter's uh, talent uh, and passion to have been willing to take on uh, this problem. Uh, Merck uh, runs a research portfolio of about $8 billion in uh, uh, R&D budget uh, per year. And so you can imagine the challenge that it is to take such an enormous operation uh, and try to uh, get it to productively focus on the right problems uh, to answer really important uh, problems uh, in human health. Uh, during his time there, a number of fundamental new mechanisms have uh, uh, been exploited to uh, new th uh, pharmacology and therapeutics uh, for human diseases, including uh, the uh, human papillomavirus uh, vaccine uh, and citagliptin for the treatment uh, of type 2 diabetes. Uh, and just this week, uh, the uh, very favorable review by the FDA uh, of the protease inhibitor for hepatitis uh, uh, C virus uh, infection. 
So uh, today, uh, he's going to talk to us uh, about uh, what is really one of the hard and important problems in human health, uh, developing preventive therapy for HIV. Peter? Thank you very much, Rick, and uh, thank you, Bob, and uh, Yale School of Medicine for inviting me to this really uh, wonderful event, which has uh, been a real pleasure to participate in. Um, as Rick said, I would like to talk to you today about a very difficult problem uh, that we face, and the problem statement is illustrated on this slide. Uh, it's been estimated, the most recent estimate from the United Nations and the, CDC, uh, the World Health Organization is that there are currently over 33 million people on Earth who are living with HIV. Now, what that means is that approximately one out of every 200 people on the planet is currently infected uh, with this virus. And, uh, I believe that this remains as the largest public health issue that science needs to address uh, as we move forward. It's not been an easy issue to address, and indeed shortly after the virus was isolated, Margaret Heckler, who was then the HHS secretary, uh, put out a statement saying that we hope to see a vaccine ready for testing in people in about two years. She said that in 1984. Uh, and then she went on to say, yet another terrible disease is about to yield to patients' persistence and outright genius. Uh, unfortunately, the fact of the matter is that uh, patients' persistence uh, have not led to uh, a vaccine for this infectious agent, uh, in spite of uh, efforts on the parts of many uh, who you may consider to be outright geniuses, but they still haven't solved it. Um, Vaccines are a very important part of what we do at Merck. We uh, are interested, obviously, in, and we try to create drugs to help people, but we also have a long history in vaccines. Uh, going back on this slide to the measles vaccine in 1963, and as you can see, over the years, uh, Merck has had a long history and a rich tradition of producing vaccines, which are an extraordinarily cost-effective way of preventing disease. Uh, most recently, as Rick mentioned, you know, one of the real successes has been the vaccine for the human papillomavirus, uh, marketed as Gardasil, which uh, prevents over 70% of cervical cancers. Uh, you know, every year, over 500,000 women get struck with cervical cancer, and over half of them die from it. And uh, this vaccine, which is a virus-like particle, has proven incredibly efficacious against uh, preventing the infection of human papillomavirus and the consequent uh, uh, acquisition of um, cervical cancer. The history of uh, Merck and vaccines really uh, centers, for the most part, around uh, a very uh, legendary person who I had the great fortune of getting to know before he died, and that's Maurice Hilleman. Maurice Hilleman uh, was someone who, uh, a microbiologist who worked at Merck for over for nearly 30 years. Uh, he's actually uh, been credited with saving more lives than any other scientists uh, in the 20th century. Indeed, of the 14 uh, currently routinely recommended vaccines, Hilleman was responsible for eight out of those 14. And it's been estimated that the vaccines that he created 
save literally 8 million lives every year. Uh, so it's with that uh, sort of passion and history that Merck has had a long-standing interest since the virus was discovered of trying to come up with a vaccine against HIV. Indeed, uh, HIV research has been part of uh, Merck since, as I say, the vaccine was discovered. Vaccine, excuse me, the virus was discovered. Vaccine research started early. Reverse transcriptase inhibitor research, uh, protease inhibitor research, and integrase inhibitor research led to the discovery of Crixivan, one of the first protease inhibitors, Stocrin or Efavirenz, which is a, a reverse transcriptase inhibitor, and recently Isentris, which is an integrase inhibitor for the treatment of uh, HIV. Uh, but coming up with a vaccine to uh, prevent HIV infection has proven to be very difficult. You know, many of the vaccines that we have today rely on uh, attenuated or uh, killed viruses or organisms. And indeed, live attenuated vi vaccines work extremely well for polio, measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella. But uh, so far, and uh, the field tried very hard, particularly in the early days, it's not been possible to come up with a safe window for HIV between sufficient attenuation to prevent disease and sufficient safety uh, to, uh, excuse me, to sufficient attenuation to allow for a vaccine without uh, having safety issues uh, in that window. Killed viruses work well for hepatitis A and polio, but so far uh, in HIV, in preclinical uh, primate studies have not proven effective. So the field has really uh, started out initially to try and come up with an antibody-mediated response against HIV. There was a great deal of work that went on uh, by many, many uh, people around the world to try and do this. Uh, and for the most part, this has been uh, uniformly unsuccessful. And uh, then uh, th that has also led to efforts in cell-mediated response. Just to very, very quickly review uh, many, many people's work over many years, uh, much of the work to try and come up with an antibody-based vaccine has been focused around the envelope protein of HIV called GP120. And uh, what is found is that the mutation rate of the virus is just astronomical, the rate at which this virus replicates is very, very uh, high. And although it's been possible to isolate broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies rarely from infected patients, and you know, I need to emphasize that there, this is a very rare event to be able to do that, it's not been possible to demonstrate a broadly neutralizing uh, neutralization uh, activity by vaccination. And I'll just say that that's really been, it's not for lack of trying. There's been a lot of people that have tried very hard. Merck was among those that tried and also failed. And uh, that led then to efforts to try and do something which had never really been done before. And that's to create a, a vaccine based on a cell-mediated immune response. And that's uh, the first story that I'd like to tell you today. This is, a, a, it's actually uh, not a new story, it's an old story, but I think it's an important story to tell. Uh, because it gives us a, a, a status of where it is that we stand in this effort. The idea behind creating a cell-mediated uh, immune response vaccine is to prime the immune system such that circulating cytotoxic T lymphocytes will go around in the body. And those CTLs will recognize an infected cell and then kill that infected cell. So the idea is not to prevent the initial infection, but rather to kill cells that are infected 
uh, using the cell, uh, stimulation of the cell-mediated immune response. And there basically uh, are four steps that uh, one wants to go through here. First, one needs to identify what vaccine antigens you want to express in order to elicit the uh, vaccine response. Then you need to select the best way of getting that cellular immunity, and then obviously test it in preclinical uh, models, which for us are non-human primates or monkeys, and then finally to test them in the most promising candidates in the clinical study. And so for the first step, what was done was to look at infected HIV subjects and to look with uh, different peptide pools corresponding to different proteins uh, in HIV. And what's shown here is that there's a very uh, good response across different clades against the GAG, NEF, and PAL proteins. And uh, so I'll just tell you that the final vaccine that was tested here included GAG, PAL, and NEF as the expression. Second thing that was done, and I'm now summarizing just an enormous amount of work, was to go through in a very systematic way uh, through different uh, vaccine te technologies and to test their ability to actually elicit a cytotoxic T lymphocyte response. And here I list the uh, different uh, technologies that were tested preclinically and the best ones that showed efficacy in non-human primates were then eventually tested in people uh, as shown with the ones in blue here. Uh, I'll show this result here and pause a little bit because this result, this shows that using the best technology, which turned out to be an adenovirus, a replication defective adenovirus called adenovirus 5, this shows in a direct assay that uh, what these workers were able to do was to elicit a cytotoxic T lymphocyte response in monkeys using the uh, MRK or Merck ad 5 vaccine expressing uh, in this case, GAG. And what it shows here, each of these four group, groups of four points are from one monkey. And uh, what's done is to isolate PBMCs, or peripheral blood mononuclear cells, from monkeys that have been vaccinated with this uh, vaccine. And then those uh, peripheral bl blood mononuclear sites are put on top of autologous B, cell, uh, B cells, which have been primed with a GAG uh, peptide pool. So the, the, the uh, target cells now are express, uh, have on their surface GAG peptides. And what you see is when you add now the effector cells to the target cells, they kill about 70% in this one monkey of those cells. These are different effector to target ratios. And this is the control here. And so the top panel shows you that in six different monkeys, you're getting uh, good killing of uh, these target cells. This is a virus uh, particle concentration of 10 to the 11th particles. What the bottom left shows here is that even at 10 to the 7th virus particles, or four orders of magnitude less, we're able to obtain an effective CTL response in monkeys. Now, one of the things that we worried about with using an adenovirus carrier, replication defective adenovirus, is that uh, some of these monkeys and some people will have been infected by naturally wild-type adenovirus as part of a respiratory infection. And so, as a result, this shows the results with uh, monkeys that don't have uh, antibodies against adenovirus 5, whereas over here, we have monkeys that were showing uh, adenovirus antibodies. And what you can see is that the response is diminished, but still in two out of these three monkeys here, there's a solid uh, cytotoxic T lymphocyte response. 
So the conclusion then is that this vaccine is able to elicit a robust cytotoxic T lymphocyte response against uh, the HIV uh, expressing cell, B, B cells. So then the question was, well, what does it do in terms of infection? So in a typical HIV infection, what happens is in the period of the first few weeks after infection, the virus load uh, uh, rises tremendously and it hits a peak uh, viral load within a period of weeks. And then uh, the viral load decreases as the immune system kicks in. And uh, depending, different people have different what are called set points, but basically you reach an equilibrium between the virus replicating and the immune system uh, attacking the virus. And that set point can last typically for years. And different people have different set points and it's been shown uh, very convincingly that the uh, prognosis of the patient uh, depends on the level of the set point. The higher the set point, the worse the prognosis. Ultimately, after a long period of time, uh, the immune system wins and uh, the viral load takes over and the patient then uh, uh, achieves frank AIDS. So uh, the experiment that was then done was to take uh, monkeys and to immunize them with the uh, Merck ad 5 uh, vaccine expressing gag pollen F. Uh, the control group uh, used just empty adenovirus 5 as a control and high dose IV uh, SHIV challenge. So SHIV is simian HIV. A high dose IV uh, infection was given, a dose that uh, will guarantee infection. And here are the results on the left hand side. As you can see, the monkeys that were vaccinated, these are rhesus monkeys, the rhesus monkeys that were vaccinated actually still got infected with this high dose of HIV administered intravenously. But the peak viral load was diminished by approximately one log. And the set point was reduced by approximately uh, three logs, in some cases coming down to the levels of detection. And that uh, level of uh, the viral set point, as you can see, persisted for uh, up to two years. On the right-hand side, whoops, we got a, on the right-hand side is the uh, GAG-specific uh, CD8 cells. So these are the CTL cells. And what you can see is that in the control, you can't really see, but there's just a little blip during infection. But in the vaccinated monkeys, what you can see is a very rapid amnestic response in the cytotoxic T lymphocytes following uh, infection with uh, the, thank you, following infection uh, with the uh, HIV. So taken together now, these results show that we were able actually to produce a immune response which was able to respond to the infection and to control the level of the viremia substantially in these monkeys. In humans, uh, we showed that we were able to also elicit a durable T cell response. And uh, what I haven't shown you is a, a really an enormous amount of work showing that these responses here, which are based on what's called an Elispot assay, correlate with the CTL response that I've showed you earlier. And what this shows is that in humans, in, uh, which have a low adenovirus 5 titer or a high adenovirus 5 titer, we're able to obtain in uh, between 50 and 70% of the subjects a good uh, and durable response against uh, these uh, these peptides with a good uh, T cell response as shown here.
During the course of the development of the vaccine, from time to time, an individual that we were studying would become infected during the course of the study. And this slide shows the results of one such individual. So this individual is immunized, uh, and at week eight, what's shown here are, this is overlapping uh, gag peptide pools. So this is the gag protein shown here in nine merpeptide pools. And what you see is that there are uh, CD8 responses, gag-specific CD8 responses shown in blue that are uh, hitting certain peptides uh, in the gag protein. Following infection, this person got infected, and following that infection, what you see is that those, uh, in many cases, the same uh, response was in fact amplified following the infection, showing that the, uh, the vaccine primed the immune system and the infection actually led to expansion of a substantial number of the epitopes that were seen, uh, that, were, that were primed. So we're able to get a good uh, response with CD8 positive CTL uh, cells in, in humans. And as I just showed you, that response is actually one that is amnestic when a person does get uh, infected. So that then led us then to the um, proof of concept study, the phase two study. This was called the STEP study. It started in 2004. It enrolled uh, approximately 3,000 seronegative uh, adults who were at high risk of acquiring HIV. There was a collaboration between the HIV vaccine trial network, the NIH, and uh, Merck. And uh, what we were interested in was seeing whether or not this vaccine, uh, as compared to placebo, would in the patients, in the subjects that had a low adenovirus titer, whether it would uh, reduce infection, or if it didn't reduce infection, whether it would reduce the viral load endpoint. And so specifically, we focused the primary hypothesis on those uh, subjects who did not have private, pri prior exposure to adenovirus virus. And uh, what we saw in the uh, vaccine is that the vaccine was efficacious and that uh, if many of the subjects showed a response, an LA spot or CTL response against the gag, Paul, and Neff uh, proteins, and the majority of subjects showed a response against more than two of these antigens. And indeed, uh, what we found was that uh, the median number of epitopes that was, that was recognized by subjects was approximately five uh, in this study. So what about infection? Well, in, in blue are shown the results uh, for infection now. This is acquisition of infection in the vaccinated subjects. And in black open circles are those in the placebo subjects. So first thing you can see is that overall, the vaccine did not protect against infection. The primary hypothesis was in these subjects here who had not had prior exposure to adenovirus 5. And what you see here in the primary hypothesis is quite clearly the vaccine did not provide protection against infection as compared to the control. The two are uh, practically overlapping. For those subjects that had prior exposure to adenovirus 5, uh, there's actually numerically a more patients, that, more subjects that got infected with HIV that had the vaccine than on placebo, a result that led to, that's led to much speculation, which I won't go into uh, right now for this part of the talk. 
So obviously this was a disappointment and the vaccine, although the vaccine had no effect on uh, infection when we ran the trial. Now, while few of us really saw this as the ultimate vaccine, uh, I think many of us, or some of us, myself certainly included, thought that the vaccine might, even if it didn't prevent infection, might lower the viral set point. It might actually have an effect of boosting the immune system's ability to lower the set point. Uh, and so the results of the set point viral load are shown here. Overall, there's no effect on the uh, level of the set point. And importantly, in the primary hypothesis where patient, these subjects have not been exposed to adenovirus before, you can see that clearly there's no effect on the um, viral set point, really a very clear negative result with respect not only to infection, but also with regard to what happens after infection in terms of the viral load. So futility was declared uh, in 2007, three years after we started this trial, and um, the trial was stopped. And we've been uh, making the samples from these trials available to investigators through a collaborative network that Bruce Walker oversees uh, for further analyses. But obviously the results uh, really uh, I think clearly demonstrate that um, the vaccine did not have an efficacious, uh, it was not efficacious in these subjects. And I think it really sets a, um, a solid framework for what doesn't work in terms of a cell-mediated vaccine for HIV. Because a vaccine that was tested did show efficacy in rhesus monkeys. And uh, the vaccine that was tested was shown in humans, in the majority of vaccinees, to result in significant T-cell responses exactly the way we wanted. Nonetheless, the vaccine was not effective, as I've just shown you. And so I think it would be reasonable to expect that uh, any next step in terms of testing for cell-mediated immunity can be benchmarked against the uh, cytotoxic T lymphocyte responses that we've seen here in this vaccine leading up to this trial. Overall, it's obviously um, pretty discouraging because, uh, you know, <laughs> one gets to a point where one has a, a hypothesis and one's verified the hypothesis in your best preclinical species, in this case, rhesus monkeys, uh, and established that you've, you've achieved the T cell response that you want in humans, and yet you've seen no effect whatsoever on infection. And I think what this calls for really is uh, for really a step change in terms of the uh, vaccine technologies that we need if we're going to use a cytotoxic T lymphocyte approach to uh, prevention of an HIV vaccine and certainly work towards understanding how to even get an even greater, uh, more robust uh, CTL response either through vaccine, uh, excuse me, through adjuvants or through uh, manipulation of the immune system in other ways is something that's going to be uh, very important. I think these results also, though, point to the importance for the field to continue to work on different ways to develop an HIV vaccine based on the humoral or antibody-mediated uh, immune system, uh, response. And uh, one such approach that is being pursued at Merck actually is based on work that started um, many years ago when I was uh, at the Whitehead Institute at MIT and uh, ultimately led to a collaboration with Merck and now has uh, been taken over in large part by John Shiver uh, at uh, Merck. And I'd like to tell you where we stand on that uh, end. 
Many years ago, uh, in actually 1993, Chave Carr, when she was a graduate student in my lab, uh, discovered what we called a spring-loaded mechanism by which the uh, flu virus influenza infect, uh, in infected uh, cells. And basically, uh, what the spring-loaded model uh, indicated was that the flu virus influenza uh, underwent a major conformational change, which allowed it to become a viral, a, a membrane protein in two membranes, the target membrane and the cell membrane at the same time. And then subsequent conformational changes led to fusion. The overall uh, structural hypothesis that we put forward was, in fact, confirmed in crystallographic studies by the late Don Wiley and his group. And uh, mechani mechanistically, using uh, mutagenesis, Judy White's group at University of Virginia was able to show that she could change residues in the spring and get the uh, virus to no longer infect, although it could still bind to cells. We speculated then and uh, later went on to show that uh, the HIV GP120, GP41 envelope protein would also use a similar spring-loaded mechanism. And in that spring-loaded mechanism, the GP120 would uh, bind to the CD4 and the co-receptor, undergo a conformational change, and that would allow GP41 to undergo the spring-loaded conformational change in which a three-stranded coiled coil would form at the N-terminal end of the protein. And the so-called fusion peptides, which are these hydrophobic peptides, about 20 amino acids in length, would insert into the cell membrane such that this intermediate now would be one in which the protein was inserted into both the cell membrane and uh, anchored in the viral membrane. And then, uh, in a subsequent reaction, uh, the N-terminal end of these helices and the C-terminal region of these proteins would snap together to form this trimer of hairpin, or the six-helix structure here, which would bring the two membranes together, leading to fusion and allowing the, uh, the virus uh, nucleic acid to enter the cell. One of the very explicit predictions of this model, uh, which postulated this pre-hairpin intermediate, would be that we should be able to inhibit this uh, fusion reaction by developing specific inhibitors that bound to this pre-hairpin intermediate. Indeed, we were able to design and identify inhibitors that did bind to the pre-hairpin intermediate and that did prevent HIV infection. So, for example, we could take peptides from this C-peptide region over here and make them uh, synthetically and they would, infect, they would bind to the N-terminal region and prevent infection in a dominant negative sort of way. Similarly, the crystal structure that we solved of this protein uh, complex showed a nice pocket in the part of this uh, N-terminal three-stranded coiled coil. And we were able to use phage display to identify peptide inhibitors which bound to that pocket. And we showed this is the X-ray crystal structure of that complex. And we showed that these peptides which bound to that pocket did indeed in inhibit HIV infection. So that showed that you could bind to the N-terminal region of this intermediate and inhibit infection. We then asked whether or not you could do the converse. Could you bind to the C-peptide region of this intermediate and inhibit fusion? And one idea that uh, Michael, K, uh, Michael Root and Michael K came up with was to take the six-helix structure and remove one of the helices so that you have essentially a receptor for one of the C-peptides over here. So they made a structure called five-helix which contained five out of the six helices, 
And sure enough, it bound very tightly with nanomolar affinity and inhibited HIV infection by binding to the C-peptide region of this. And similarly, using the three-stranded coiled coil of the N-peptide region, we could show that those were inhibitors uh, of this uh, intermediate as well. And so these uh, structural studies showed that they were binding where we thought that they should bind, and the uh, HIV infection studies showed that they were uh, inhibitors of HIV infection. Indeed, one such C-peptide, which had been identified by Carl Wilde and his colleagues down at Duke before we actually came up with this spring-loaded hypothesis, one of these C-peptides turned out to be a good inhibitor and went all the way through clinical trials and is currently sold uh, by Roche as Fusion. It's an HIV inhibitor. It's an injectable uh, therapeutic. And so a peptide corresponding to this part of the, uh, corresponding to one of these C-peptides is a bona fide therapeutic uh, in humans, which is to say that this pre-hairpin intermediate is one that has been validated therapeutically in humans. The question that we asked many years ago, and we've been struggling trying to uh, answer it since then, is could the pre-hairpin intermediate serve as a potential vaccine candidate? Could you actually uh, come up with a way to get antibodies against this structure and get antibodies to bind to this structure in the same way that we got these peptides and small molecules to bind and thereby prevent HIV infection? Now, because this pre-hairpin intermediate is transient, by definition, it's a transient structure, we can't use it to immunize people. And similarly, uh, you wouldn't expect to get uh, antibodies against it since it's a transient intermediate. But we had developed, through our studies of these inhibitors, we had developed mim mimetics of this intermediate. And so we could use these uh, stable mimetics to ask whether or not if we made a mimetic of this N-peptide region, like shown here, uh, could we actually get something which would um, elicit antibodies and lead to uh, inhibition? And um, <laughs> I can tell you now without showing you all the negative data uh, that for uh, many years we uh, tried and were unsuccessful in getting antibody responses that inhibited HIV using this methodology. And uh, we were about to throw in the towel now I'm coming back to Mike Brown's persistent. We were about to throw in the towel when we decided, well, we would just give it one try with a, where we actually did selection using a phage display monoclonal antibody library. And so instead of immunizing animals with these constructs, what we did was to take these constructs and to see if we could pan and pull out from a phage display antibody library an antibody which bound to these uh, mimetics and which inhibited HIV. And of course, uh, sure enough, such an antibody was identified. Uh, and that, I, that antibody, which we call D5, uh, was able to inhibit HIV infection across uh, a bunch of different uh, HIV uh, constructs, different HIV uh, species, with not great activity, but nonetheless with bona fide activity. And importantly, it was a broadly neutralizing activity. And uh, when the crystal structure of the antibody bound to the intermediate was solved, it showed that indeed the antibody bound right where we wanted it to. And it showed that there was sufficient room between the cell membrane and the viral membrane for an antibody to reach, which was a concern that we had uh, about the approach. So um, armed with the 
this then provided proof of concept that an antibody could do what we wanted it to do, even if we couldn't readily elicit them uh, in um, animals. I'll just say that we've gone on and studied a bunch of different constructs which contain the N-peptide region of GP41. These include different ways of hooking the trimers together covalently. They include ways of, of shielding the uh, scaffold part of the protein using polyethylene glycol, and they include different lengths of these constructs. And um, the other thing that we've done, we did, was to actually design a mutant envelope protein which fused slower, which stood in the pre-hairpin intermediate for a longer period of time. And that contains a single amino acid substitution at position 570 of valine to alanine. And uh, without going into details, inhibitors which work by binding to the pre-hairpin intermediate uh, work much better against this uh, mutant than inhibitors which bind uh, to other parts of the envelope protein. And what that did was to give us a higher sensitivity to look for the needle in the haystack. And indeed, as shown on the left-hand side here, now using in different colors the different, uh, the different antigen constructs that I showed you earlier, on the left-hand side, using the more sensitive virus, uh, we're able to, in guinea pigs, each symbol is a separate animal, we're able for the first time to see now activity uh, that is protecting, neutralizing against HIV infection. When we use the wild-type virus, uh, that activity is significantly decreased, but nonetheless, with some of the constructs, we're seeing uh, some activity. And ultimately, that led to us focusing in on two of these antigens. And what I show here is data from uh, David Montefiore at Duke, who's the uh, resident expert in screening these things against a bunch of different uh, pseudoviruses from different clinical isolates. And the numbers here are one over dilution of unfractionated guinea pig serum. So, uh, you know, what you're seeing is that you can take guinea pig serum without purification, unfractionated, and now, uh, in some cases, at dilutions of greater than 1 in 50, uh, get neutralization of these clinical isolates uh, of HIV. This is the first time that we've been able to demonstrate from uh, unfractionated serum that we can actually detect an anti-HIV activity following immunization. Unfortunately, the results in rabbits were not as good. These are for guinea pigs. And rather than focusing on rabbits, what we're doing is we're moving forward into monkeys. And uh, now we need to see uh, how we do there. I can tell you that based on where we are here, my gut feeling is that we still have a long way to go. Uh, but where we're, where we're headed is to first assess these immunological responses in uh, monkeys and to see whether or not we can reproduce uh, getting serum, which does show uh, activity, again, uh, neutralizing activity. But then I think we really need to, and it's not just we at Merck, I think it's we as a community, really need to think about other strategies to uh, also enhance uh, the uh, immune focus on this part of the uh, protein. And I'll just say that given what has been tested to date in, HIV, in trying to get illicit HIV antibodies, it's my personal feeling, and obviously I'm biased here, but it's my personal feeling that this is um, the most promising approach, even if it is 
uh, a long way away. It's the most promising approach that we currently have. And I would state the following reasons. First of all, uh, the drug Fusion has provided clinical proof of concept that this is a good therapeutic target. Uh, the preclinical experiments, as well as now, well, the preclinical experiments have demonstrated, well, excuse me, the, the monoclonal antibody and the crystal structure have demonstrated that indeed the antibody can get in there, and this is a viable mechanism for doing this. And the preclinical experiments now, for the first time, have given us uh, a response in polyclonal sera that is detectable uh, that we can move forward with. I should also say that uh, these parts of the proteins that we're dealing with are highly, highly conserved. And one of the reasons why they're highly conserved is, I think, because they have to actually be able to fold up into two very different conformations. In the, pre in, in the, in the in native structure, they're folded essentially as an unfolded loop. And then when they go into the pre-hairpin intermediate, they fold up into alpha helices. So they're two very different structures. And so am amino acid substitutions need to be accommodated in both of those structures in order to, um, in order to survive. Uh, and so as Probably as a result of that, when you look across different uh, strains, uh, there's a high level of conservation uh, in these regions of the protein. So the, the prospect of getting a broadly neutralizing activity, as we have seen preclinically, is one that, um, if I want to be an optimist like Charles, uh, I can be optimistic about uh, as we move forward. So uh, you know, the work that I've talked about actually spans, um, well, gosh, goes back. Uh, 20 years, 25 years, uh, and I've only focused on part of this. John Shiver really, as I said at the beginning, has uh, headed up uh, much of this work. Mike Robertson was responsible for the, clinic, uh, the clinical monitor for the STEP study. The work that uh, I talked about originated at the Whitehead at MIT, really I would, uh, in particular focus on Chave Carr, uh, David Chan, and Debbie Eckert for their work here. The HVTN and the NIH, as I said, were collaborators on the trial. And uh, much of the work that I haven't told you about, uh, which are in large part uh, often negative results, were also uh, extensive uh, collaboration with the academic community and the biotech community as we try uh, in our efforts here to do something about uh, this really great uh, medical problem that we face uh, as a scientific community. So thank you very much. Peter S. Kim, Ph.D., was one of 15 illustrious scientists who delivered lectures to a capacity crowd at Yale School of Medicine at a symposium celebrating the school's bicentennial in April 2011.